politics, particularly in 2016, was really this race-centric view where you have a group of racial conservatives on one side and non-white America on the other. But what's actually happened is the groups that are opposed to each other in the electorate are white college voters and non-white voters. And they, they tend to move in opposite directions. We're seeing it in the performance of various Republican candidates against Donald Trump that the candidates who tend to do well better with white college voters, like Nikki Haley, tend to do somewhat worse relative to Donald Trump with Hispanic voters, for example. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara ong And I'm Kyle Kondik. We're delighted to have with us today Patrick Ruffini, a founding partner of Echelon Insights and a Republican pollster. Mr. Ruffini is author of the new book, Party of the People, Inside the Multiracial Populist Coalition, Remaking the GOP, which examines an unfolding political realignment, especially along class lines with implications for the 2024 election and beyond. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here. Patrick, in your book, you offer an alternative to multiple narratives, especially from the left about the American electorate, um, including some of the ideas that we've heard since the early aughts about demographics as destiny um, in the wake of 2016 about the role of racial resentment in identity politics. Um, And I would go so far as even to say the predominance of it's the economy, stupid, um, since the early 90s. Um, But your central thesis is that we're experiencing a multiracial populist realignment for multiple reasons. Um, The triggering of educated whites away from the Republican Party in 2016 um, and in 2020, Uh, a realignment among working class, especially of Hispanic, Asian American, and Black voters towards the Republican Party. I wonder if you can just start by talking a little bit about these shifts and what they will mean for the 2024 election. Sure. So the theory that demography is destiny, um, and that theory, uh, just to restate it, is that, uh, you know, as uh, non-white groups grow as a share of the electorate, Um, their preference for Democrats becomes even more and more significant to the electoral calculus to a point where it becomes very, very hard for Republicans to win elections in the future if, um, you know, particularly after 2012, um, you saw a non-white electorate go 80-20 for Barack Obama. If you, you know, double the size of that electorate, you could see how that um, creates pretty big problems for the Republican Party. The proponents of the theory are not wrong about the fact that non-white groups, especially Hispanics and Asians and mixed race voters, are growing uh, as a share of the electorate. Uh, Maybe not growing as quite as fast as we thought, right, uh, in in the early 2000s, but still growing. Um, What they got wrong was the fact that these the preferences of these groups would stay the same over time. And as we know, uh, groups constantly are shifting uh, in their voting preferences. But I argue in my book that uh, this is kind of an expected outcome of groups that are becoming larger and less marginalized in society, right? I mean, if you have uh, generations, and, and this has been true throughout our history, but when you have generations of recent immigrants to the country, uh, they generally start out in a place that's economically, um, you know, really at the bottom of the ladder. And uh, often what comes with that is distinctive political preferences. And oftentimes what comes to that 
his preferences for you know maybe more, more radical political positions or uh, support for the parties of the left. Um, but as we see Hispanics, especially moving up the ladder uh, of economic prosperity from 2014 to 2019, um, incomes among Hispanics went up by about 20%, matching the gains with Asians. We already kind of have this image of Asian Americans as being this very highly upwardsly mobile group, uh, you know, going to be, becoming college educated um, at much higher rates. But that was also true of Hispanics, maybe without the college education piece. Um, I think that you, what you tend to see with these trends is higher incomes, suburbanization, less residential segregation, um, you know, people kind of taking more white collar jobs in the workplace, um, to some extent, becoming more college educated. And I think that means a political alignment that's going to inevitably be more politically mixed. It's not that it leans Republican. It's not that, oh, Hispanics are natural Republicans or Hispanics are, let's say, a very religious group that is ultimately going to gravitate towards being a more Republican group than the country as a whole. It's just that, you know, they're going to start out from a place where they were very uh, they leaned very far to the left, and they're going to uh, move, I think, more and more to the center over time. So demographic change ends up being self-regulating in a, in a sense that you uh, get different demographic groups, you get different demographics in the country, um, but you get the same competitive politics as a result. You know, we were just talking before we started about uh, Kevin Phillips, who recently died in the, the book, the, the Emerging Republican Majority, which is kind of a classic of political analysis from from the late 60s um but you know just to just to put a put a fine point on it it, it does, and, and you you basically just suggested this but um th the book is not really an argument that like we're heading into an emerging republican majority necessarily it's just that maybe that the the idea that we're heading into an emerging democratic majority may not be right and also that there are opportunities i guess for republicans amongst these key groups that have been democratic is that like a fair summation of where you're coming from I think so. I mean, any it seems like any emerging majority prediction is always cursed, right? Because you have the emerging Democratic majority in the immediate aftermath of that, George W. Bush wins a popular popular vote majority. And only in 2008 did, was that, did that get its day in the sun, right? Uh, with the election of Barack Obama, which seemed to, I think, track with the predictions made in the emerging Democratic majority. But then you go to 2016 and, uh, you know, it, it, the, 20, the pre- election narrative in 2016 was even more reliant on this idea that a candidate like Trump could never win in a multiracial America because of his uh, supposed racial dog whistles, activating racial resentment, insulting Latinos, um, doing everything that he did. And that was proven wrong in the most devastating way possible. You know, had a Marco Rubio won the 2016 election, I don't think people would be you know, there would not have been the same reckoning for the emerging Democratic majority hypothesis because, you know, he would have been seen as this avatar of, let's say, a more moderate multiracial, uh, you know, uh, Republican Party uh, that the Republican Party itself moderated and shifted uh, in the same way that the Republican autopsy in post-2012. You know, that was um, a really a key moment that I highlight in the book that um, the reaction to Mitt Romney's defeat in 2012 among the Republican establishment was that we really need to address uh, the issues that we face with non-white voters and particularly moderate on immigration policy to appeal to Hispanic voters, for instance, moderate on social policy to appeal to women. 
And so it was really this you never let a good crisis go to waste moment where the party's establishment, um, you know, I, I think always held these kind of beliefs about the electorate and they, they really tried to their stamp on it. And of course, Donald Trump takes that in 2016 and does the opposite and wins and wins and probably maybe in a way that other, you know, a candidate who had followed the autopsy might not have won, right? Because he mm-hmm. went to Pennsylvania, he went to Michigan, he went to Wisconsin, he wins states that were always kind of loosey in the football for Republicans. Republicans are always kind of coming so, so close to winning Pennsylvania or winning Wisconsin, never managed really quite to, and never really managed to do it. Um, so, so I do think that, you know, in a sense, like it was very unexpected and it caused a, a reckoning. And I think that the, uh, to uh, also just say like, to, to, you know, I think that the proponents of this hypothesis have, have kind of juxtaposed white working class voters and non-white voters. So the declining non-white, white non-college vote with a rising non-white electorate as sort of the, you know, the sides that are, kind of doing battle in the electoral ground, then you have this sort of a group of white college voters that's sort of more politically balanced in the middle, right? But um, politics was supposed to be, particularly in 2016, was really this race-centric view where you have kind of a group of racial conservatives on one side and non-white America on the other. But what's actually happened is the groups that are kind of opposed to each other in the electorate are white college voters and voters. And they, they tend to move in directions, right? I mean, we're seeing it in the performance of various Republican candidates against Donald Trump that the candidates who tend to do well better with white college voters also tend to, like Nikki Haley, um, tend to do somewhat worse relative to Donald Trump with Hispanic voters, for example. Um, So that was unexpected, right? I mean, this idea, the only group of voters in the electorate that was really turned off by Trump's rhetoric on racial and other issues was white voters with college degrees, at least in their shifts, right? At least we're really just talking right now about shifts. Non-white voters remain uh, lean, you know, towards the Democrats. Um, There's polling out for 2024 that suggests that might not be as strongly the case, but they still lean towards the Democrats. But we're really talking about the shifts and the changes in the electorate um, since 2012. Patrick, you know, just drawing from that point, one of the ways you really just sort of neatly lay out uh, the changing electorate is that class is no longer divided along necessarily economic lines, but now educational lines, uh, which you just uh, uh, laid out for us. Um, but but then on top of that, that Donald Trump was also, also ran a very well-targeted campaign in 2016 that I think a lot of people took for granted in really going after low propensity voters um, that were in the working class. You know, on, on top of that, I think there's there's sort of a taking for granted the the alignment or or the closeness of working class voters on more socially conservative issues and that mattering more in terms of realigning with the Republican Party over over the Democratic Party. I think when you say Donald Trump's campaign was well-targeted, and I do, you know, I do use the words freakishly well-targeted in the book. Uh, what, but what I don't mean by that is that he ran a very technically advanced campaign in 2016. That was true. In 2020, he did uh, as the incumbent. But it was a very ramshackle operation out of a couple floors in Trump Tower. He had no real infrastructure. He won the primary with nothing, you know, no real... Uh, just himself, just rallies, right? Um, and 
you know, was able to lay waste to the Republican establishment with almost no staff, almost no no people from the top upper echelons of Republican politics. So I think that distinction is um, important because what he did have was good instincts about the electorate and where the ma- true majority led in the electorate. And this idea that um, you uh, that really the median voter is really clamoring for somebody to, to speak to them in kind of the soothing, moderate tones that the, let's say, the Republican autopsy writers had envisioned, right? That that turns out to be false. That, you know, you had somebody who, like Trump, could speak very directly and very bluntly about the fail- what people saw as the failures of the political establishment in a way that no career politician really could. And, you know, we just not had a non-career. I mean, it's also remarkable. Uh, his candidacy was also remarkable in the sense that we, done, we had not had a non-career politician major party candidate since Dwight Eisenhower. So, uh, you know, I, I think people underestimate the extent to which that turns out to be very important. But also the way he went about it um, in terms of his understanding of, well, the, the median voter here in the electorate is not, you know, first of all, is not, you know, you know, I think one way, you know, really strongly one way or the other, but they are more, let's say, liberal on economic issues than they are on social issues. Um, so it's not that they're really hardcore social conservatives. Um, I, I think that that's a little bit of a myth, right? Um, I think at least as it relates to the Hispanic votes, that they're generally people that generally speaking, these voters are pretty moderate. Their views, especially non-white voters, their views kind of align with the, the rest of the electorate. Um, uh, you know, they're not far off the rest of the electorate and they're really their voting patterns that skew more democratic, but their views on both social economic issues are a little bit more moderate. And it, it particularly among the non-college educated majority, which is, uh, you know, 62, 64% of registered voters in the country, um, you know, their views kind of on these cultural issues are a little bit further to the right than their views on economics and their views on economics tend to actually be a little bit more left-leaning. So when Trump Kind of went into a Republican primary talking about, above all, we need to protect Social Security and Medicare. Uh, that ha- that support has 70%. That position has 70% support among all parts of the Republican Party, including people who call themselves populist, moderate, establishment Republicans. All segments of the Republican Party believe that equally. But it was something you would almost never hear from a Republican before him. Um, one of the questions that I and others get asked a lot in, in the political analysis world is like, what are you optimistic about? And oftentimes I just, you know, it's like a blank stare. It's like pretty easy to be very negative about what's going on, but there actually is, I think a positive story or that you're telling in this, in this book to some, to some degree, which is that if you imagine, I think sort of a, I think personally kind of like a, a bleak future for America, part of it is like racial polarization gets even worse basically. And that like white voters become like even, you know, sort of what, what you maybe could have imagined, like, um, kind of before Trump, even that like, like, you know, the white voters continue to get more Republican and that non-white voters become extremely democratic. And then there's this just, like co- constant push and pull between those groups. And certainly the country is still like racially polarized, but part of what's happened here is that the country's actually gotten a little bit less racially polarized in their voting which I, I think you could argue would be a positive development in the in the longer term. And I think you you, you suggest that in the book. Yeah. So I, I think that, 
just in terms of the numbers and the data, right? It's not to suggest that there are no racial problems anymore. But I do think quite, you know, uh, quite frankly, the reality and that's shown by the data is very different than the one portrayed in, let's say, more academic settings, <laughs> present company, ex ex uh, you know, accepted. Um, and, um, you know, I think when you look at the numbers on, you know, intermarriage is just one, you know, is just one uh, number in terms of the increasing frequency, but also just near 100% acceptance of that over, over time, which was not really true even 20 years ago. Right. Um, there's been a, just a dramatic increase even just within the last 20 years. If you look at all the statistics on racial residential segregation um, going down um, and certainly, you know, there are, you know, it's more challenging when you look at the statistics for African-Americans as, as compared to Hispanics. There's no doubt about it. Um, but you do have, again, more examples of just suburbanization, people living closer together, um, you know believe the numbers of people in surveys who've reported uh, that they know somebody who's racist has declined in every single group except for white liberals who after 2014 after 2015 uh, rose in the number but um but really generally speaking that's going down and that is reflected in you know maybe the these communities becoming less racially polarized as we become more polarized on other issues right on education and partisanship in general is getting worse, right? I mean, if you, you know, think part of, you know, political, you know, hardcore political partisanship is worse. But I think we just tend to overplay that narrative a little bit. And I think we're seeing it in the current polls where it's almost unthinkable to people that a group, let's say young voters or non-white voters could vote really dramatically differently from election to election. And I think we underplay the extent to which that is still true, that, you know, big swings are possible. And people are, again, more part polarized on sort of in their partisanship and all the things that are associated with that. Um, but in some ways, like who's in the parties from cycle to cycle or decade to decade can change in oftentimes pretty substantial ways. And we saw that really in 2016 in a big way. You know, I, w I wonder, you know, to also also to what extent like there's just been this sort of taking for granted that demographic groups are a monolithic block, right? And and so that just has helped some of these narratives persist. And, you know, we, we that's something that we try to emphasize here is that demographic groups are not monolithic um, on, on the one hand. And and then on the other hand, you know, for some groups, there's, there's different waves of migration and immigration into the United States and different patterns of socialization into our politics that might affect, you know, different demographics demographic groups differently. And so so that, you know, could also be at play here in terms of seeing different um, turnout rates and and different participation rates across elections. Yeah, I mean, you see this a lot in the Hispanic community where you look at a place like Florida and for a long time it was dominated by Cuban-American voters who leaned pretty Republican as a result of escaping a communist regime uh, back home. And, um, you know, you had a hope for a long time um, for de by Democrats that this rising Puerto Rican community in Orlando would kind of save them because it, it, that group voted Democratic. In New York City, and Puerto Ricans moved to New York City, they were very Democratic. Now, they were very Democratic in part because they're living in an urban, a very highly urban neighborhood. New York City is a place where the Republican Party generally 
has been competitive in city elections, but, but beyond the spell of electing Republican mayors at the you know kind of turn of the century. Uh, but um, but in general, you know, the the game in a lot of these places that um, you know, particularly Mexican Americans in California moved to or Chinese Americans moved to is all in the Democratic primary, and so uh, it's best to organize within the Democratic primary to elect leaders from our community in those primaries, in those districts. Um, and there's not really much two-party competition in a lot of those places. Now that declines with suburbanization. But I think going back to Florida for a moment, um, you really see how those two communities couldn't be more different. Um, but there's moving in the, they, in 2020, they trended in the same direction, but from a very different baseline. Um, and I think it's also true of immigration politics now as well, that you know, you see the long-term immigrants to the United States, you know, really more than their fair share of Mexican Americans. Um, you know, that's been the historical, you know, group that has immigrated the most to the United States. But the groups that are coming in now, Venezuelans, Central Americans, even folks not from Latin America who are part of this current asylum crisis. And, you know, I, I do wonder about just how much, you know, the politics of that within the Hispanic community how much that's kind of changed, right? Uh, you know, a, a, how, how people kind of view that differently in the sense of there being kind of this pan-ethnic identity that's really a strong, that you would see, I think among black voters, for example, I think there's a very strong sense of political unity there that doesn't really exist in the same way among Hispanic and Asian voters. You, you, you touched on this briefly earlier, but I wanted to specifically ask, so, you know, one of the themes of the recent polling that's come out from all sorts of different sources, including from, from your own firm, um, has been one that President Biden is in, in a pretty weak position right now versus Donald Trump in a hypothetical 2024 presidential matchup, but also that you're seeing these huge swings amongst particularly young people, which there's, it seems to be some debate as to how real that we should, we should, um, we should look at that. Like, like what, what's your, what's your opinion on that? I mean, is that, is that plausible to you that that Trump and Biden could be, you know, pretty competitive amongst young people? I think the evidence is not as strong about, about young voters than it is about non-white voters um, specifically. Um, and I think this was actually brought up, uh, actually a thread out recently from John Byrne Murdoch of the Financial Times really looks at the differences between phone and online surveys. And there's a pretty big difference on the particularly on the age splits um, between phone and online surveys, um, where the phone polls seem to really be generating these uh, big swings uh, in the younger vote, whereas the online surveys don't show as big of a swing, maybe a little bit of erosion. And you could imagine what's going on is that, you know, perhaps I think those are the polls that are subject to what we call differential partisan non-response, that, um, uh, you know, uh, you really have people who are picking up the phone who really have a real choice or, you know, really kind of have a lot of discretion about whether or not to participate um, because they're not really being incentivized in any way to participate in the survey. So uh, if they're not really motivated to vote, um, you know, then they tend to respond less. And that could, that could be behind some of this. Um, now, the, the evidence for you know, a, split, a change among non-white voters is more convincing because that is duplicate. And that's really, you see that in both phone and online surveys. Now, I think regardless of, okay, I think Democrats have said, there's just absolutely no way, right? Biden is behind with non-white voters. And maybe that's correct. But what I would argue is, you know, you're seeing, still seeing a lot of red flags here 
um, for Joe Biden in terms of if your base voters aren't motivated to even answer a phone call. I mean, that kind of can't indicate very good things about turnout. You also have generally seen just particularly this 18 to 29 demographic. You've seen big swings within that based on who turns up to vote. So uh, particularly between presidential year, like presidential years and midterm years, uh, you generally see that that age group swing a lot. And it's really because, you know, the composition of who's in the electorate changes quite a bit. And so 2008, you know, I mean, you saw this massive, huge majority for Obama that then declines by 15 points in 2012. Uh, because I mean, I think partly because, you know, you, people were uniquely motivated in 2008, maybe to vote for Obama and it's not so much in 2012. So I think particularly with these lower turnout constituencies, you do have to watch for turnout. And I think you have to watch for third parties specifically. So they're not really out of the woods yet, even if, yeah, maybe this, if you, if you surveyed every single, you know, young voter and you had a purely representative sample of everyone, you would not see Donald Trump leading, but that still doesn't mean there aren't problems there. You have been at the forefront in terms of using technology. And so I want to ask you just what your thoughts are in terms of how artificial intelligence, generative artificial intelligence might impact campaigns and elections as we head into 2024. Uh, that is a super interesting question. Uh, I think it poses both opportunities and challenges. So I, I think that from a um, you know perspective of uh, the operational side of political campaigns, um, I think just as in all other industries, uh, that you could see processes be very you know much more made more much more efficient. Um, in terms of, hey, we're drafting, we want to draft, let's say, social content for, uh, you know, a lot of groups. And I don't think like people have talked about this for for years, right, that we can really micro target individual groups. Um, but that really hasn't been possible, really, from a practical standpoint, because the labor that, you know, how labor intensive that is to actually do it right, and to actually build a customized message. So you could imagine maybe a slightly more advanced version of AI kind of figuring out that, okay, we want to, uh, you know, really micro, we have the ability to write, copy, and micro-target content for very, very narrow, specific niche, niches of the electorate and, you know, serve that at scale. Um, I'm not sure that's a great thing. I'm not sure, actually, I'm not sure that will end up being a great use because, you know, sometimes you... Just and I've evolved and changed my views on this, but you do kind of need an overarching message that works, right? So if if you become obsessed to obsessed with trying to micro target each individual segment, um, you lose sight of the bigger picture. People don't really know what your overall message is, and mm. um, people lose sight of it. And you could be saying one thing to one audience and another thing to another audience, and really get called. Um, but I'm optimistic about it. I mean, I think like you know we're really, really, really exploring how to really put this to work at our firm in terms of just making our internal, like the way we work internally more efficient. If, uh, you know, they're just things that, uh, you know, maybe they're insights that uh, things that we didn't quite find in our uh, first pass through a survey and saying, all right, what does the AI think? You know, it's just kind of a second opinion. It's maybe a junior, an extra junior level staffer that able to, you know, add extra bandwidth and Patrick, uh, uh, really, we really like the book. Kara and I both read it. I can attest to that. Uh, so, we, yes. <laughs> uh, 
and uh, um, heartily recommend it. Party of the people to people on both sides of the aisle, really, because it's a really great tour, I think, through a lot of uh, interesting recent developments in um, in American politics. Also, a look back at you know how some you know different different groups have changed over time. So um, definitely recommend it. Uh, as Larry Sabador, our boss, always says, you know, the ho- Christmas is coming up, holidays are coming up. It's a great holiday gift. So uh, thanks for coming on. Great. Thank you so much. Listeners, you can find a link to Party of the People in the episode notes. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at center number four politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.